0: 2007, September 27th. Today is Lecture 7, The Four Seasons. Yesterday we talked about the daily and annual motions in the sky that we see because A. We are on the Earth rotating once around its axis every day and that produces the daily motions. The apparent rise and set of objects in the sky. The sun rises in the east, comes to a maximum height in the south, and then sets off to the west. Similarly, in addition to this general rightward rotation of the Earth, the Earth is orbiting as it moves around the sun once a year. And so I get this extra motion in which the sun appears to move with respect to the background stars. And it moves along a tilted path through the celestial sphere called the ecliptic. And we talked about four special points along the ecliptic. The two points where the ecliptic crosses the celestial equator, one of them called the vernal and the other one called the autumnal equinox. The point where the Sun is at its maximum northern declination, the so-called summer solstice, and where it reaches its maximum southern declination, the southern solstice. Those names are obviously evocative of the Four Seasons, and in fact that is the topic of today's lecture, the Four Seasons. The origin of the Four Seasons is due to the apparent motion of the Sun across the sky and this combination of the tilt of the Earth. So today we're going to introduce the Four Seasons. The four climatary seasons and middle latitudes are due to the fact that the Earth's orbit is tilted with respect to the plane of its orbit by this 23.5 degrees, we call the obliquity of the ecliptic. But it is important to point out that it is not due to changes in the distance of the Earth from the Sun. The fact that the, sun is clo- the Earth is closer to the Sun in some seasons than others turns out to be a very small effect compared to what's actually going on. It's the tilt of the Earth's axis that is what causes the climactic seasons. And there's two things that it does to affect the the seasons as seen at middle latitudes. The equator is a special place, as are the poles. One of them is that the amount of direct sunlight, which we call insulation, changes as we go from one side of the Earth's orbit to the other. And the second is we see a change in the length of the day. Days are longer in summer, shorter in winter, If the sun's above the horizon less time, there's less chance for heating. And so that's another contributor to the major change in climate we see from season to season. Finally, at the end of this, I want to mention a further motion that appears on the sky called the precession of the equinoxes, which is a slow westward drift of which direction the Earth's pole points to, which means Polaris, the pole star, was not always the pole star, nor will it be in the future. We'll see that towards the end of class. So today we're going to talk about the four seasons, their causes in the apparent motion of the Earth, and an extra motion on the sky, the precession of the equinoxes. Now remember yesterday we said that the Earth's rotation axis is tilted with respect to the plane of its orbit around the Sun. This is why the ecliptic is a tilted circle tilted by roughly 23.5 degrees with respect to the celestial equator. Now it turns out that this tilt is a pr- very particular tilt. It's a tilt of like a rotating top. So I've got the Earth here, and I've I've added a little extra to my inflatable Earth today. I've put a long axis here, a little pointy arrow, three dimensions, which shows you the direction of the Earth's general rotation axis. And remember, the Earth's rotation is eastward, so it follows a right-hand rule about that you know, slightly floppy axis there. That spins like this. but the Earth's axis is tilted with respect to the plane of the orbit. Now what I'm gonna decide is the plane of the orbit for this demonstration here around the sun is the plane of the floor. So the Earth is orbiting around the sun, kind of imagine the sun in between, and its axis of rotation is tilted with respect to that plane. So as I walk around my sort of imaginary sun, actually it seems to be kind of silly for me to be walking around empty space, so we'll have Marvin here stand in for the sun. So as the Earth rotates, and I'm not going to try to produce the rotation, it also orbits in a right-hand sense. And the pole always points off to the same place in the sky. In this case, it's sort of up in the corner of the room there, but you can imagine it's right now fairly close to the star Polaris, pointing off towards roughly where Polaris is right now. And so the Earth always points in that direction. It's like a spinning top wobbling around on a table. It always points in roughly the same direction. It's a kind of a gyroscope effect. Exactly what's going on in the Earth goes on in gyros. Now, notice that it does not do this where I say, well, in this particular position here, the pole of the Earth is pointing towards the sun. It does not roll around like this. This is the wrong motion. This is kind of like curly going around like that. That doesn't happen. It always works so as to point in the same direction, the same thing over time, same thing year after year. Now, if we watch it, not year after year, but century after century or with modern instruments year after year, we find in fact that the pole does slowly roll around roughly westward. So there is a slight wobble to the earth, but this motion that I'm producing here in a couple of seconds, plays out over 26,000 years. So it's a very, very subtle motion, which is caused by the precession of the pole, or more precisely, it's referred to as the precession of the equinoxes, the easier thing to observe. So the Earth's axis always points off in one direction. It's got a very slow motion, but year to year, on a sort of regular human time scale, it essentially points the same way as it orbits around the sun. So first of all, let's take the perspective of us standing on the Earth, although we're going to stand a little bit outside of it and look back at the celestial sphere. And I can see the lights are just a little high, so I'll drop those down a bit. It makes it a little easier to see that in contrast. That's better. The Earth here in the center, the celestial sphere, the celestial equator, and the celestial north and south poles. We saw yesterday that the apparent path of the sun across the sky over the course of a year is called the ecliptic. It's tilted by this 23 and a half degree angle with respect to the celestial equator. And there are these four locations along there, the autumnal and vernal equinoxes and the summer and winter solstices. This is the effect of the tilt as we see from, a, from an Earth-centered point of view. The sun's apparent path is following this tilted path around the Earth. But of course, that's not what's actually happening. What actually is happening is that the sun is at the center of our solar system and we are orbiting around the Sun. Now I've drawn this in such a way as to over exaggerate the size of the Earth so you can see it. The size of this orbit has really got a diameter of about 300 million kilometers and the Earth is only about 14 million kilometers in diameter, so it'd be very hard to see this if I drew it perfectly to scale. And notice just as I did with the inflated globe there, the Earth's pole always points off in the same direction. So Polaris is off in the general direction of the little blue arrow on top of my globe picture here. In September, where we are now, the sun is roughly on the celestial equator and the pole is pointing off at kind of a right angle. So the sun-earth line and the line of the pole meet at a right angle. In December, towards when the class is over, it's still pointing off in, in this case in my picture, to the left. The sun-earth line is now lined up with the line of of the pole in the sense that now the pole, north pole, is pointing away from the sun. Back over in March... The pole line and the Earth-Sun line are now at right angles. And in June, six months later, the North Pole of the Earth is now pointing more or less towards the Sun. And it repeats that process as we go around. So we're pointing towards the Sun in June. We're pointing at right angles to the Sun in September. North Pole is pointing away from the Sun, again tilted from straight up. 23 degrees over, so it's generally pointing away from the sun in December. And then finally here in March, again, we're pointing at right angles. And we repeat that as we go around. So you'll notice, for example, the amount of illumination of the sun is different through these different portions of the year. In June, the north pole of the Earth is illuminated. It's in sunlight. In March and September, the exact north pole of the Earth is in twilight. And in December, the north pole of the Earth is in perpetual darkness. While at the same time, the southern pole is now in light. In March and September, the south pole is in twilight. And in June, it's the south pole that's in perpetual darkness. So these define how we see this manifestation of the tilt of the Earth with respect to its orbit as we move around through the course of a single year. Now if we again return our view now to an even more provincial point of view, and this is the important one, is now standing at a particular location upon the Earth and in this particular case, I'm standing at a middle latitude in the north. Can anyone give me a sort of an eyeball as to what northern latitude I'm standing at? Roughly? About 45 degrees. Someone got the, the angle here between the zenith, the north celestial pole, and the north compass point. This north celestial pole is about halfway there. And remember this angle from the north compass point to the north celestial pole in Northern Hemisphere is my latitude. So this is, in fact, is the view you would get from about 45 degrees north latitude up around the Canadian border. Okay, so here's the celestial equator making a nice little angle of 90 degrees minus 45. So it's exactly 45 here. If at the day of the vernal and autumnal equinoxes, the sun is more or less exactly on the celestial equator As we then, since it's on the celestial equator, on the day of the vernal or autumnal equinox, the sun will rise in the east and set in the west, going over exactly half of its full 24 hour circle of rising and setting. So the day will be 12 hours long and the night will be 12 hours long. At the summer solstice, the sun is at its maximum northern declination away from the celestial equator. Right now it's at a declination of about plus 23 and a half degrees north. So it rises a larger fraction of the 24-hour daily motion circle of the sun is above the horizon. So on the day of the summer solstice, the sun appears to rise in the northeast, stay above the ground at a middle latitude like this, maybe 18 hours, and then set in the northwest. So the day is 18 hours long here in the summer, whereas it was 12 hours here at the vernal and autumnal equinox. Finally, in the winter solstice, as seen from the northern latitude, the Sun is at its maximum southerly declination. It's 23.5 degrees below the celestial equator on the celestial sphere, and so it rises in the southeast, barely gets above the southern horizon, and then sets in the southwest. Since a smaller fraction of this complete circle is above your horizon, the day here is fairly short. So, for example, at a particular latitude, you might have a 12-hour day and night when you're at the equinoxes, an 18-hour day on the summer solstice, and a 6-hour day on the winter solstice, followed by an 18-hour night. Now, I've, I've not given you the exact numbers for 45 degrees latitude, but you get the idea. This, you notice that you have a difference in the length of the day depending on the time of the year, where the sun is along that ecliptic, and how I watch its path through the course of one day. So the last two pictures showed the course of the sun through one year. Now I'm going to freeze frame it and talk about just one day of that motion as seen from a particular location on the Earth. These are all the pieces we need to explain the climactic seasons and the differences of the seasons in terms of length of day and the weather and the amount of solar heating. So let's pick up these days, just the four special days, the equinoxes and the solstices. Again, to review, the equinoxes occur in March and September in the current epoch. These are the days when the axis of the Earth is at right angles with respect to the Earth's sunline. So if I'm in this position here, this would be in the um, March or or spring equinox. And then when I wait six months later, I come back around to September, again moving around in my right-hand sense, And now again, the pole of the Earth is at right angles to the Earth-Sun line, or in this case, the inflatable Earth-Marvin line, which I'm using Marvin as our sun stand in. Because, as we saw in that previous picture, the sun rises exactly in the east and sets in the west. Half of its daily motion circle is above my horizon. So I have a 12-hour day and a 12-hour night. That's how it gets its name, the equinox. It comes from the Latin equinoctis, meaning equal night in March at the time of the vernal equinox we call it the vernal equinox because it's vernal in Verna is spring so in the northern hemisphere we have springtime you're making the transition from winter into summer but in the southern hemisphere March is autumn so for example if you live in Santiago Chile down in South America in March is about when you start going to school again whereas in the Northern Hemisphere, it's September, the previous season. For us, northern spring, that's about spring break. So in the northern hemisphere, they're going on spring break. In the southern hemisphere, classes are just getting started because the seasons are, in fact, exactly inverted from the northern to southern hemisphere. In September, the sun is is now on its way southward along the ecliptic. It's crossing the celestial equator heading south. We have what we call the autumnal equinox. In the Northern Hemisphere, it's now the autumn season, and in the Southern Hemisphere, it's spring. So, for example, school starts in the autumn equinox and ends are getting their spring break in Santiago, Chile at the time of the autumnal equinox. Now, you'll notice there's a bit of hemisphere uh, bias here. This is a Northern Hemisphere bias in this name. My Chilean friends all get a giggle at the fact that we call the March equinox the spring equinox and the September equinox the fall equinox. Because down south, those seasons are completely flipped. There has never been a consistent change in nomenclature for a global approach to this. The, the term, for example, March equinox and November equinox, or November equinox, pff, boy, pff, see, even I can't do it. The March equinox September equinox has never caught on. The term vernal equinox has actually been locked into the astronomical nomenclature. Strange but true, it's just the way it works. It gets even stranger, of course, when we get to the next ones. So, if we were to look at the sun, look at the Earth in detail, the earth sun line and the poles are at exactly right angles to us. In that case, on the day of the equinox, if you were standing on the equator, the sun would be exactly overhead. In fact, on the day of the vernal or autumnal equinox, if you were on the equator, you cast no shadow at noon. The sun would be coming straight down on top of your head and you wouldn't cast a shadow. We can see the sun is very far away off to the left in this picture, And so you can see the rays of light as they hit the Earth. Obviously, they hit it head-on here at the equator and at an increasingly oblique angle as we move to greater southern or northern latitudes. So this is the picture in both March and September. The solstices are when the Sun is at the two extreme points in its motion. In December, the Earth's north pole is tilted away from the Sun. So again, continuing our demo here, we have the Earth's pole tilted. Here we are in the autumnal equinox. I go six, three months around my orbit. And here I am in December. The Earth's north pole is pointed away from the sun. The south pole at the bottom here is pointed towards the sun. In this case, the sun, because the sun is, the south pole is pointing towards the sun, the sun is at its maximum southern declination. It's as far south of the celestial equator as it ever gets, about 23.5 degrees. And so we say that we are at the winter solstice or the extreme southern solstice as it's sometimes called. In the northern hemisphere, this is winter time. The sun is very low in the sky, the days are very short, the weather's pretty cold. However, in the southern hemisphere, the sun is high in the sky and it's actually, the day is longer than the night in the southern hemisphere. I've often had the experience, for example, in December or January is when I usually go down to Chile to service one of our instruments down there. In many cases, I've gotten onto an airplane in Columbus on, like, the 26th of December. It's been four degrees below zero Fahrenheit. I'm bundled up in a jacket. I get on an airplane. Twelve hours later, I come out of the airplane in Santiago de Chile at 30-odd degrees southern declination, and it's 96 degrees Fahrenheit. It's middle of summer. It's blazing hot, and I'm this damn fool getting off off the airplane with a gigantic down parka over my arm. So you can, within a few hours, you can go through extreme changes in temperature just because in the north, the sun is low in the sky and it's winter, and in the south, the sun is high in the sky and it's now summertime. So you get an exact inversion of the seasons. We can see this by looking again at this rays of the sun picture. At the winter solstice in December, the northern hemisphere pole is pointed away from the sun. The southern pole is pointed roughly towards the sun. Again, this tilt is 23 half degrees here. When we are standing on the southern tropic, the Tropic of Capricorn, the sun is exactly overhead. It's at a latitude 23 half degrees south. The south pole is in complete sunlight and the north pole is in complete darkness. But up here in Columbus, the sunlight is hitting at a very oblique angle. So fix this picture in your mind here because we're now going to go six months later to the other extreme, to the summer solstice. So now I've come around six months from December. I've gone from my pole pointing away from the sun. Now I dance around, it's June. The north pole is now pointing towards the sun by its 23.5 degree tilt. And the sun is at its maximum northern declination above the celestial equator. In this case... Very quickly, I have northern summer. The sun is very high in the sky in the northern hemisphere. The day is longer than the night. In the southern hemisphere, the sun is very low in the sky and the day is much shorter than the night and they're having southern winter. So again, I've also had the experience of getting on an airplane in Columbus, it's 80 degrees. I get out of the airplane in Santiago and I'm digging through my bag for my coat because it's now about 40 degrees. They're near the coast so they never really get to freezing down there. So it's very often I've had, you know, you've had the experience of crossing hemispheres now with inter- large intercontinental plight. You've got to watch out which season you're in. The only season that's comfortable to fly from north to south is in autumn or spring because you're hitting the temperate season when you cross the equator. But otherwise when you cross the equator at the extreme solstices you get extreme changes in weather. And again our ray picture here, the northern pole is now pointing towards the Sun. The Sun is directly overhead on this on the northern tropic called the Tropic of Cancer at 23.5 degrees northern latitude. The North Pole is in complete sunlight, and the South Pole is in perpetual darkness for all day long. The Sun never rises or sets above well the Antarctic Circle. Now, it's this effect of light, sunlight hitting the Earth directly or indirectly, that is the primary cause of the extreme temperature differences we experience at the middle latitudes. So what really matters for solar heating, how much heat I get from the sun, is determined to first order by how directly or indirectly those rays of the sun are hitting the ground. To a first approximation, the difference in distance between the Earth and the sun over the course of a year is fairly small, as we'll see. When the sun is directly overhead, straight at the zenith. So for example, I'm I'm down at the equator and the sun's reached its maximum height above the ground on the day of the equinox and the sun's straight overhead. The sun's just beating right down on top of my head. That's a brutal day because on that day you get the maximum concentration of sunlight. How much is the concentration? Well, here's a number to conjure with. The maximum amount of solar heating that you get, the amount of sunlight that actually hits the ground is about 1,000 watts for every square meter of ground. So if I laid out one square meter of ground here and had sunlight shine straight down on it from the zenith, I would collect 1,000 watts of power. Now, how efficiently I can collect that's a different problem. That's a lot of energy. That's why solar energy is such an exciting possibility as an alternative energy source. There's a ton of power in that. Now, when the sun gets 30 degrees above the horizon, though, whether the sun might be overhead, but then I wait a few hours and the sun gets low on the horizon, it's now 30 degrees off the horizon the rays of light are hitting at a slant angle. So I take that square meter and I kind of spread it out. It's kind of like the difference between shining a flashlight straight at a wall and then kind of shining it obliquely at the side. At 30 degrees, the sunlight that would normally fit into one square meter coming straight down gets smeared into two square meters when hitting at an angle of 30 degrees. And so now I take my 1,000 watts per square meter and I take 1,000 watts and spread it over two square meters so I only get 500 watts per square meter when the sunlight's slants down at 30 degrees. That's half the power. And half the power means half the heating. So now you can see that the sunlight angle can have a very dramatic effect on the amount of solar energy that's hitting the ground and heating it up. This effect of the amount of sunlight hitting the ground per square meter is called insolation. The sol there, of course, is the Latin for the sun. Don't confuse this with insulation, which is the ability to isolate something from something else, like, say, isolate hot from cold, and, you know, like the inside of an oven or the inside of a refrigerator. So here this is graphically. We take one square meter, a nice round spot. Sunlight's coming straight down, and I have one kilowatt, 1,000 watts per square meter of power. I take that same bundle of light, come in at a 30-degree angle, I now spread it out over two square meters. I get one kilowatt per square meter coming straight in, but then I smear it all out over two square meters. So the power I get on the ground here is 1,000 divided by two or 500 watts per square meter, a half a kilowatt per square meter. So it's this effect of smearing the light out, this insulation effect that gives me the difference of heating from sun being at noon to sun being near sunrise or sunset And also from season to season, the fact that the sun either rises in the summertime, it rises high in the sky, in the wintertime it's very low in the sky, I get less insulation when the sun is low in the sky, I get less total solar heating. So here is again those four pictures we showed before, but now I've ganged them all together. On the autumnal equinox, which was Sunday, the sun was right overhead at the equator, and I get this sort of angle of sunlight at a middle latitude. This spot up here is about where Columbus, Ohio is. On December 22nd this year, the North Pole will be pointing maximally away from the sun, will be at the winter solstice, and now you can see that the angle at which the sunlight hits the ground is very extreme. It's a really long slanting angle for Columbus here. By the time of March next year, on March 20th of 2008, we'll be back to the vernal equinox and the sun will be much higher in the sky, hit at a much more direct angle at noon, And then finally, June of next year, 20th of June 2008, we'll hit smack on here. The sun will be very high in the sky. You can see it's very close to direct rays. Not exactly direct, you have to be further south for that. But up here at 40 degrees in Columbus, the sun's coming down pretty directly, and we have summertime. So that's the first effect that gives us the essential heating, is this effect of insulation. What about the Earth's sun distance? I mean, all, we've all had the effect of standing a long ways from a fire and it, it doesn't appear to warm us very much, but the closer we get to the fire, ooh, you know, it gets nice and toasty when you get close to it. Well, the Earth's orbit is, in fact, not circular. It's slightly elliptical. Aphelion, the point of greatest distance from the sun, occurs in July. In fact, in July of 2007, it will be, this year it occurred on July 7th. At that point of Aphelion, furthest from the sun, it was 152.1 million kilometers from the sun. At the other half of the orbit, six months later, we have perihelion, which is closest approach of the Earth to the sun. So the Earth's orbit is kind of an elliptical. It comes fairly close to the sun and then gets far away at aphelion. At perihelion, which occurs in January, and this year coming up it will occur on January the 3rd, this Earth will be 147.1 million kilometers from the sun. So it's quite a bit closer. If you do the difference here, it's a difference of about 5 million kilometers. That's a lot. Remember, the Earth is only about um, 13,000, 13,500 13, kilometers in diameter. So the Earth is many times its diameter closer to the sun in January than it is in July, by 5 million kilometers. But that difference of 5 million kilometers is out of 150 million average distance, that's the size of an AU, only makes a difference in the total solar radiation hitting us of 7%. And notice that it occurs 7% greater sunlight in January in the Northern Hemisphere, or all around the Earth, compared to 7% less, because we're further away in July. I don't know about you, but I would not go around wearing shorts in January up here and I certainly wouldn't want to be wearing a down parka on July 7th. So what's going on here? Well, even though we are closer to the sun, the effect of the slightly larger 7% greater solar power, because we're closer to the sun, is completely overwhelmed by the effect of insulation, of the sunlight angle that hits the Earth. This is why distance doesn't matter for how warm or cold it is on the Earth, because we're not that elliptical, and it doesn't make that much of a difference. Let me give you this in numbers. Now I don't need to worry about memorizing these numbers. These are just an illustration here to show you how much the effect is for a middle latitude like Columbus. So we pick June 21st and December 21st, basically approximately the summer solstice and the winter solstice respectively. At Columbus, Ohio at 40 degrees north, the sun's maximum altitude above the ground, if I face south, the sun will be 73 and a half degrees Above the horizon at noon on the summer solstice in Columbus. If I take that kilowatt per square meter and I spread it out because of the 73 and a half degree incidence angle, I get about 960 watts per square meter. If I go through the climate records for June 21st, the average high and low temperatures for Columbus, Ohio are about 80 degrees and 58 for the high and low, respectively, in Fahrenheit, of course. The day is 15 hours long and the distance of the sun is 152 million kilometers in round numbers. Now I go to December 21st, the winter solstice, the sun is at its maximum southerly declination. The sun barely gets more than 26 and degrees above the southern horizon at noon on the day of the winter solstice. The sun is really low in the sky. If I spread that kilowatt per square meter out by a 26 and degree angle, I only get 450 watts per square meter. That's less than half the power that I had hitting the ground per square meter in June. Not surprisingly, the average high temperature is 39 degrees and the average low is 25 degrees. Day only lasts about nine hours long, but I'm five million kilometers closer to the sun than I was back in June. So even though I'm five million kilometers closer to the sun, I'm only getting half the sunlight for every square meter of ground because the sun is way low in the sky. And so not surprisingly, my average temperatures are a lot colder than they are in June. Okay, not to put too fine a point on it, distance doesn't matter. Okay? There's a great film that's shown about a private universe is the name of it. It was a series of exit interviews done with graduates of Harvard. In which they ask them questions like, why is it hotter in the summer and colder in the winter? And most of these Harvard grads, just about to get their big do, good-doing job at law firms and wherever else it is Harvard graduates get their jobs, were saying, oh, well, you know, the Earth is closer to the sun in the summertime than it is in the winter. And that's completely false. The Earth may be 5 million kilometers closer to the sun in January. In other words, the sun from the northern hemisphere is closer to the sun in... Earth is closer to the sun in winter, and yet it's a whole lot colder. Okay. As seen in Columbus, that's a 7% difference in the amount of power. There's 7% more sunlight per square meter coming in the atmosphere, but it's getting smeared out because the sun's way low in the sky. So actually, even though you get 7% more total solar radiation from the sun, you're spreading it out so much that you're getting 50%, less than 50% of the power actually soaking into the ground because you're smearing it out into a long, flat beam. The bottom line is this. The seasonal temperature variations that we see at middle latitudes as we move around through the year have nothing to do with the change of the distance of the Earth from the Sun. It has everything to do with the fact that the Earth's axis is tilted with respect to the Sun and that at different seasons, different amount of sunlight is is spread out by different amounts. There's different amounts of insulation because the Sun is either higher or lower in the sky at noon and on top of that, the day is shorter or longer. So it's insult injury, right? In Columbus, there's more sunlight, but it's only above the horizon for nine hours, and it's smeared all the hell out, so there's practically no power absorption. In the summertime, the sun is 15 hours above the horizon. You get 15 hours of solar heating at a much higher angle, even though you have 7% less total solar power because we are further from the sun. So, the effect of insulation and the length of the day is what dominates the te- seasonal temperature variations. Yes, ma'am, you had a question there. Ah, very good question. Is the southern hemisphere summer warmer because their summer occurs when we are closer to the, earth, to the sun than in the north? The answer to that, in fact, is no because the 7% is completely swamped again by that same effect of insulation. So in fact, if you look at mean land temperatures and mean ocean temperatures from northern to southern hemisphere, there are significant seasonal differences, but that's primarily due to the fact that most of the southern hemisphere is ocean, most of the northern hemisphere is land. And that actually gets into the fact that you'll notice the day of maximum solar radiation in Columbus is when? Everybody? When's maximum solar radiation on the earth in Columbus, Ohio? Approximately. June when? June 21st. Yeah, I see if you'll have sign language going on out there. Come on, speak up. It's okay. You do not show up on the microphone anyway. When is the hottest day in Columbus generally? Or in Ohio generally? Is it June 21st? When was the hottest day of the summer? When was the record temperature set? Anyone Remember? It was sometime in late July or early August. Why is that? There's approximately, also, what's the coldest day of the year? It's usually in February is when you're freezing your butt off, not in January and December. December can actually be warm and sunny. The reason is because the actual detailed climate of the Earth is determined by the interchange of energy between oceans and land and air. There's actually a one-month time lag on average between maximum solar radiation and maximum air or water temperature. So if you looked at the variation in solar radiation and you looked at the variation in maximum temperatures, you would actually see those two curves shifted with respect to each other by a month. We're getting maximum heating, but it takes time for it to build up cumulatively. That's why the hottest weather is always shifted, right? It's the spring, it's the vernal equinox right now, and it was 90 degrees outside on Monday. What was it like on the spring equinox last March? Well, it was threatening to snow. So you've got to be careful. A, little, a lot of extra stuff is going on into detailed climate. That's a very good question. But it's really dominated by things like ocean and landmass, And so insulation is the primary driver, but then it gets smeared out. Okay. Last thing we want to cover today, as I've said all along, the Earth's pole points directly at Polaris. It doesn't change. It isn't going around like this as it rotates through the year. It's always pointing up at, at Polaris. Well, okay, I slightly lied to you. It actually isn't pointing exactly at Polaris all the time. It turns out there's a very, very slow wobble to the axis of the Earth. It makes a very slow westward drift with respect to the rotation axis. It takes about 26,000 years for it to make this turn once westward. Now notice I'm going in the opposite direction as I go around through 26,000 years. This amounts to a tiny amount of angle. The pole will move with respect to the Polaris by 50 arc seconds per year, or about one degree in 72 years. So, to add up to the point that human beings can see that, you've got to live a very long time. So, it takes stable records to see it. It was discovered by Hipparchus of Nicaea in around 150 BC and is caused by tidal torques from the sun and the moon. It's caused by the fact that there's gravity of the the moon and sun upon the earth, which is causing it to wobble a bit, like a top wobbling on the earth. Here's sort of what the earth looks like. It's kind of like a spinning top with a slow wobble on it. Okay, this precession causes the equinoxes and solstices to drift westward through the constellations over time. Right now, the the vernal equinox is in the constellation of Pisces and is going to enter the constellation of Aquarius in the year 2597. Back around 1 AD, this was in the constellation of Aries, was where the vernal equinox was. Why you'll often hear the term first point of Aries used to refer to, in older, older books, to the vernal equinox, because that's where the equinox was located. In astrology terms, when the equinox moves from one constellation into another, you enter a different age. Hence, the term age of Aquarius from the famous musical hair is referring to a time in the distant future, not in the 1960s, it turns out, when the vernal equinox will move into the constellation of Aquarius. The summer solstice is now in the constell- leaving the constellation of Gemini and entering the constellation of Taurus. But in the year 1 AD, it was in Cancer. The sun is directly overhead on the Earth on the Tropic of Cancer on the day of the summer solstice. That's why it's called the Tropic of Cancer. It's a memory of a map of the Earth from 1 AD, the first century, that that's where the sun was on the solstice. The Tropic of Capricorn, that's where the winter solstice was in the first century AD. It's no longer in Capricorn. It's now in the next constellation over, which I'm forgetting off the top of my head. Oops, that was out of place. So if we look at the position of the North Pole star, it slowly changes in time. Here in 2000 AD, it's near Polaris. But in 2700 BC, the first kingdom of Egypt, it was near the star Thuban. And for most of antiquity, there were no major naked eye stars anywhere near the Northern Pole. It's only been in recent years that Polaris has been the pole star. So when you read in Shakespeare in Julius Caesar that he is as constant as the North Polar star That's unfortunately a bit of anachronism. In 33 BC, when Julius Caesar was uh, alive, the North Pole star was nowhere near the pole. So the slow precession of the equinox is very slow. It takes 26,000 years to go around, but it can be measured easily. In fact, it was measured in classical times. But it means the pole star is most in constant. Apologies to William Shakespeare. See you all tomorrow.